You are listening to National Security Law Today. Hi there. Thanks for listening to National Security Law Today, the podcast of the Standing Committee on Law and National Security. We're going to bring you part two today of our series on how climate change is going to have a massive impact on national security. And as you may have picked up on it, we have been looking at batteries, batteries that will power our cars, our weapon systems, and the increasing number of devices on which we depend. So in order to illustrate that, we thought we'd take a look at subsea mining, in particular in the Clarion-Clipperton zone of the Pacific Ocean, which is not far from Tonga, but not on the side of Tonga, where that massive underground volcano erupted. Last week, we brought you the views of conservationists, and this week, we're going to go to part one of the views of industry, and in particular, the mining industry, the industry that is involved in the contracts with the seabed in the CCZ. We're going to go and hear a little bit from industry, then we're going to come back to the environmentalists and sort of hear their counterpoint. And then we're going to move on in our series to talk to real battery scientists about what is actually needed. And we're also going to talk to the industries that feel that they have some interests here, which simply aren't addressed through our current legal structure. So thanks for listening. I'm Elisa. And I'm Yvette. And this is National Security Law Today, the podcast of the Standing Committee on Law and National Security. Thanks for tuning in. We're building on our previous casts about how climate change will affect national security law practice and national security generally. Having discussed oil and gas and markets, we and everyone on the globe are now moving to issues that will arise with the shift in battery-powered vehicles and the increased need for battery-charged devices. Batteries require minerals, a fact many of us forget, and batteries have a finite life, making them not a forever solution. In our quest for minerals to make batteries, we're moving into areas of the globe that are contested. As China and India grow and Russia sees the possibility of oil and gas markets diminish, we'll find ourselves competing with our adversaries for scarce mineral resources. Apart from mining these minerals, does the United States have the ability to produce batteries or is that infrastructure in the hands of foreign actors on whom we might be unwise to rely? And is control of these minerals a national security concern since the batteries are critical to any number of weapon systems in our communications infrastructure? Many of the minerals sought for these batteries come from somewhere other than mines on land or terrestrial mines. They actually come from the seabed, much of it three miles below the ocean surface in international waters. Now, what law governs this dark abyss in which humans may come to depend? And who has the capacity and legal authority to mine the seabed? Who owns the minerals down there? What risks are known about mining that seabed? And what risks may lie ahead for humans, the planet, and our national security as seabed mining develops? And what could happen to those deep sea communications cables that have connected people across the planet? And who owns these minerals exactly, if anyone does? To illustrate these issues, we're going to direct our attention to a zone in the Atlantic known as the Clarion-Clipperton Zone, or the CCZ, as we'll refer to it in this cast. Now, some of you may have heard of the Glomar Expedition, which is something that national security history buffs may have heard of. We will talk about that later, but for right now, just know that the CCZ is located 1,000 miles south of Hawaii, 1,000 miles west of San Diego, California, and not far from Tonga, Nehru, and Kiribati, small island nations with which most Americans are unfamiliar. We're going to continue our series today with private mining interests and seabed mining from the mining company, the Metals Company. We're joined by Scott Siegel of the Policy Resolution Group at Bracewell LLP. 
Welcome, Scott. We're delighted to have you. It's great to be here. Thank you. All right, Scott, let's get you to tell us just a little bit about the CEZ, what, CCZ. Rather. What is on the seabed there and what does the mining industry see are the United States strategic interests in the CCZ? Sure. Yeah. Well, first of all, the CCZ stands for the Clarion Clipperton Zone, and it's about a 1.7 million square mile area of the ocean, as you said, between Hawaii and Mexico in the Pacific Ocean. This is not a well-populated area of the world. In fact, Clarion Clipperton is named after two islands, Clarion Island, population nine, a property of uh, Mexico, and Clipperton Island, an overseas property of France, population zero. So it is not a heavily populated area. Once we go beneath the surface and some three miles down, we find ourselves on the sea floor. And uh, there are located a resource known as polymetallic nodules. Polymetallic nodules contain essentially four of the key battery metals. You were talking about minerals being a limited resource from the perspective of a battery construction, and that's certainly true. Cobalt, nickel, copper, and manganese. And these are all found in a single ore, about a, the size of a potato, and you find them simply arrayed on the uh, floor of the abyssal plain. Now, they formed over millions of years ago from minerals that had been absorbed into seawater and then precipitated out in the form of these nodules. They don't come up from uh, vents. They don't come up from geological or volcanic activity. Rather, they precipitate out of the seabed floor, which explains why they're located on top of the floor. So unlike mining that some of your listeners might be thinking of, here, this is more, a more appropriate word would be collection. Because what you're actually doing is picking up the polymetallic nodules as they lay on the floor, not actually digging for them or using explosives or making a lot of noise or things like that that can be uh, troubling to sea life. This area has been heavily surveyed. It's kind of an interesting story. The very first discovery of a polymetallic nodule was in 1873 on the, the so-called Challenger mission. Uh, now, the Challenger is a famous a ship that went around the world uh, trying to map the bottom of the ocean using the old-fashioned way, lengths of rope, to determine uh, what the subsurface looked like. And they actually did a pretty darn good job of doing it. But when they were mapping the Clarion-Clipperton zone, they pulled up some of these polymetallic nodules. Uh, they didn't know what they were. They tested them very quickly on board and found out that they had a, a good supply of manganese oxide, which is why they were often known as manganese nodules uh, before they were known as polymetallic nodules. Now, the question of why this is in the strategic interest of the United States, I mean, let me just say that if you look at these critical minerals, for example, nickel, there is no battery chemistry which doesn't use nickel. We, we, we may think of lithium ion batteries or nickel cadmium batteries, but actually all batteries use nickel because they're essential for making the anode of the, of the battery itself. And if you look at supplies of nickel, you wouldn't find them in the United States. The most promising and largest new supplies of nickel in terrestrial resources involve what's called laterite mining, which you would find in the Philippines or in Indonesia. And unfortunately, those mineral reserves lie adjacent to uh, rainforests, which is some of the most uh, biodiverse and critical habitats uh, anywhere on the planet. You think about cobalt, and I'm sure a lot of folks have read the stories about child labor and cobalt. The number one supply of cobalt in the, in the world from terrestrial sources comes from the Democratic Republic of the Congo. 
And there, uh, I've recently seen a, a series in the New York Times, it was a piece in the New Yorker, um, just a whole lot of literature about how uh, devastating the conditions can be in the Congo and what that means. And the one thing we know about minerals resources that are on the seabed floor, they are adjacent neither to rainforests nor to child laborers. From that perspective, those certain externalities that are associated with critical minerals don't obtain in the context of, of seabed minerals. We compete for mineral supply and for mineral processing with our greatest adversaries. And I, I know Elisa talked about that a little bit, but just to give you an example, the People's Republic of China is not only is a major source of critical materials in its own right, but also has almost a 90% share in the processing of minerals. And this is what is so interesting about the, this deep sea resource. As we indicated, the deep sea resource is very close to the United States. And so as a result, those polymetallic nodules can be brought back to the United States where they can be processed. And this would mean the first major attempt to restore mineral processing facilities to the United States in many, many years. And this is a very exciting prospect. You know, I could talk for days, but I'll, I'll let you guys get back to questions. No, we appreciate it. I think it's really helpful to discuss the alternatives as you've brought up. I think that, you know, a counter to, okay, well, these materials aren't adjacent to child laborers and they're not, you know, otherwise difficult to access. Well, you know, the abyssal plain is the home to a lot of rare species of animals. A lot of them are undiscovered. We saw a lot of them kind of wash up in the tsunami. A bunch of undiscovered animals were brought to the scientific community following that disaster. And so people might say, hey, this isn't an uncontroversial exercise to try and, and reap these resources from the abyssal plain. Right. No, and we certainly do hear that. A couple of things for people to think about. This particular area of the abyssal plain under three miles of seawater is not a particularly diverse area for species. So most of the species, for example, that washed up on shore would have come from much higher levels within the ocean, within the sort of trophic pyramid of where life appears in the ocean. In addition, when we do see a diversity of life on the very deep sea floor, it usually is uh, related to uh, volcanic vents. And as I said, these polymetallic nodules are precipitated out of seawater. They don't come from volcanic activity and come through the vents. So this is uh, not an area where we have a lot of resources. But I would be wrong, Yvette, if I didn't wholeheartedly agree with you that the clean energy transition is going to require trade-offs. Billions of tons of metal are going to be extracted from the planet over the next 30 years to make the green energy transition available if we're going to have a ghost of a chance avoiding the worst consequences of global climate change. So metal extraction, whether it's on the land or in the sea, is going to have some trade-offs. But I would note that the abyssal seafloor contains 300 to 1,500 times less life than the terrestrial areas that, uh, from which uh, metals would be extracted, 15 times less carbon than the ecosystems on land. So there's actually, not only are the metals utilized for clean energy transition, but the actual act of recovery of polymetallic nodules is much more carbon sensitive. I'll say to all your listeners, if you go to Google and you type in greatest threat to the oceans, it is not seabed mining that comes up, but it is of course global climate change with its thoroughgoing and complete difficulties that it, uh, and stress that it puts on the ocean. So in our view, at least, while no method of extracting metals 
is perfect. From an environmental perspective, utilizing a life cycle analysis, which we think is the only but responsible thing to do, and taking into account the human consequences like child labor, I think there's no question but that seabed mining is part of the solution. Now, I'm not here to tell you that it's the only thing we ought to do, but I will tell you this. The most environmentally sensitive thing we can do with metals is recycle them. But right now, with the percentage of the vehicle fleet in the United States or elsewhere in the world being a tiny percentage electric versus an overwhelming percentage of internal combustion vehicles, you can't recycle that amount of battery metals into the hole. You, or to put it more simply, you can't recycle what you don't have. If you inject new metals into the system, you are then able in a, say, a generation or even less to convert to a circular economy. A recycled economy. And the metals company, for example, is, is committed to building mineral processing facilities in the United States. Those will become the recycling facilities of tomorrow. The same technology will be used to recover the metals from recycled batteries. But you're not going to get to the circular economy that's premised on recycling if we can't get the metals at the front end. And unfortunately, Within the United States, for example, and this is you know, from a security perspective, within the United States, we just don't have the resources for that. Within Canada, within Australia, even great allies of the United States taken together do not move the needle for the key battery metals without disturbing rainforest land or child labor. Let's then talk about what the legal framework is around this enterprise. Can you tell us about the laws and treaties that govern the international seabed in the CCZ in particular? And can you tell us what the mining industry's perspective on the U.S. not being a party to any of the agreements? Yeah, yeah, sure. That's a, it's a great question because the first thing everybody needs to know is particularly with respect to this exciting resource in the CCC, the clarion Clipperton Zone, that's in international waters. And so who governs? Now, there's a somewhat apocryphal story. We talked about the Glomar Explorer. There's an apocryphal story about former Secretary of State Henry Kissinger using the review of mineral resource as a cover for uh, other activities that were going on, uh, recovery of submarines and the like. But actually during that expedition, they began to do more assays of what the polymetallic nodules actually contained. And he sort of quietly informed the United Nations that the United States had verified this tremendous resource and we were gonna start picking up the nodules, which is the beginning of the negotiation for the United Nations Convention on the Law of the Sea actually got underway in 74. This negotiating process was actually in response to these deep sea material resources which the international community regarded as, and this is a phrase you hear used in the treaty, as the common heritage of mankind. The UN establishes uh, the, the Law of the Sea Treaty. It comes into effect in 1982. And in 1994, they establish a further extension of the treaty, which sets something called the International Seabed Authority, which is the United Nations organization that's based in Kingston, Jamaica. The ISA is in charge of the management of the resource, is in charge of evaluating and transferring leases, approving contracts, and also the establishment of a mining code, which is a regulatory code. And we'd be very familiar to lawyers that are listening in on this podcast in the sense that it is a code which is premised on best practices and the like. Now, that code has been under sort of continuous development for the last 10 years. It is behind schedule. To uh, folks who know administrative law, it won't really surprise anybody that the development of regs do get behind schedule. 
But in the International Seabed uh, Extension of the UN Law of the Sea Treaty, it allows for a leasing state, a requesting state, a member state, to request that the ISA move forward on a two-year period to be on target to release regulations. That was invoked by the Republic of Nauru. That was actually, Nauru was the very first lease granted, so it's somewhat fitting. It's also an island that is in harm's way from rising sea levels. So on a lot of different grounds, the exercise of Nauru's sovereignty in this matter makes a lot of sense. But they requested this two-year shot clock. Now, environmentalists should be very familiar with this because the case law of environmental law in the United States is a full of examples of environmental groups suing the Environmental Protection Agency to put them on a schedule. Those are called deadline lawsuits. This is uh, somewhat uh, predicated on a similar theory. It's not really anything uh, uh, particularly unusual. So what does the ISA look like? What does this consensus organization do? It is in charge of leasing of contracts, and it has been doing so and has been working hard on the mining code. You raise a point in your question, though, which is the United States negotiated the 82 agreement, negotiated the ISA agreement, and then never ratified the United Nations Law of the Sea Treaty. It is not essential for the U.S. to be a member of the ISA for the United States to benefit from seabed mining. And the reason it's not essential is because we're a free market economy. There are Western companies traded on the NASDAQ, for example, like the metals company can certainly locate their vessels in the United States, which they do in the port of San Diego. They can do their minerals processing in the United States and they could serve U.S. markets. However, this is between you, me, and the wall. I wish the United States would ratify the law of the sea treaty. It would make things a lot easier. And I'm that number of environmental organizations, I think, that would agree with me. But as with the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, the National Association of Manufacturers, the American Petroleum Institute, I mean, there's, there's a, a wide consensus that the United States ought to ratify the LOS, but that's really beyond my brief right now. You know, I say that on my own behalf and on behalf of anybody else. I just think it would make sense for the U.S. to go from being observer status at the ISA to being a fully enfranchised voting party. Talk to us for a minute about the ISA. You've mentioned it's located in Kingston, Jamaica, which right. um, I don't think any other international body is. And you've mentioned that it has how many members did you say, Scott? It has 160 and... plus. Yeah, no, no, even more. I mean, the ISA was set up by the UN back in 94. It granted its first license to explore for polymetallic nodules to the Nauru Ocean Resources Incorporated, or NORI, as we call it. The right to that exploration contract is uh, exercised by the metals company. And, you know, as of January of last year, the ISA had issued permits and entered into, co- into about 30 contracts for exploration of nodules and, and included relationships with 21 different contractors. What I would say about ISA is it's a pretty diligent organization. Most of the active members of ISA are the nation states themselves. 18 of the contracts that have been issued are held by only seven countries, China, France, Germany, India, Japan, Russia, and South Korea. Although there are other countries involved as well who utilize private contractors to undertake and and develop their resource. And that's, by the way, that's not just the three nations that have already been named, Tonga, Kiribati, 
and Nauru. It also includes the United Kingdom, for example, which has its own seabed resources company, but is a private company. The Belgians, for example, use a, a private company as well. But they, uh, it's the profits of this or the contracts themselves that fund the seabed somehow. Isn't that right? I mean, I think one of the claims about the International Seabed Authority or ISA is that they have an inherent conflict of interest. Well, no more so than the United States government does when it leases in the Gulf of Mexico, for example. In order to develop resources, a competent regulator must walk and chew gum at the same time. So you have to be able to do things which set up a system that encourages responsible development of the resource while at the same time ensuring that the best practices are met. You know, I, I mean, I, I have a lot more experience than I suspect people listening in, since seabed mining is, is really a nascent industry at this point, I have a lot more experience in the, in the offshore oil and gas industry. And, and what that tells me is the regulator has no problem both selling or, or offshore wind development is an, another example of selling leases in exchange for royalty payments that are made both to the federal government and to the states. Likewise, royalty payments collected by the ISA and benefiting the member nations of the ISA. So, uh, you know, it's really no different than regimes that we're quite familiar with. Well, that's a helpful context and kind of segues really nicely into our next question, which is about what the status of these operations is. You said it's nascent. What is the current state of affairs and what are you all projecting would be the footprint most likely kind of help frame the frame the debate? Sure. I think the first thing we have to do is learn a, a little bit more about how seabed mining actually works. And so you can, it'll be able to tell you where in time and space the program is right now. The first thing I would say is just, I, I want people to sort of visualize what deep sea mining looks like in this context. As I say, the nodules are on top of the seabed floor. And so I, I don't want to be too simplistic in analogizing here, but if anybody's ever been to a driving range and seen the golf balls picked up or observed a, a swimming pool vacuum cleaner working, picking up leaves on the bottom, then you'll, you'll know what I'm talking about. Uh, so we're talking about a device, which is a low intensity, low impact device that picks up materials, picks up the polymetallic nodules and brings them through a riser system. And those of you who are familiar with offshore oil and gas will know about risers. These are specially developed maritime pipes. Any silt, actually any water, seawater, that comes up with the nodules is placed back into the water at the 1200 meter mark. It's not placed back at the very bottom because that wouldn't give enough time for the flocculants to settle. And it's not obviously not placed back at, up at the surface because that's where most of the fauna in the ocean, that's where most of it is located. So you wouldn't want to put it in the most active zones. So where are we? Speaking now only for the metals company, it's my understanding that they're ready to test vehicles as soon as this year, as 2022. One of the things obviously we're waiting on is the finality of the mining code from the International Seabed Authority. And if they make their two-year commitment to develop these regulations, then commercial activities could begin in 2024. Provided, of course, and I want to make this very, very clear, provided that the environmental review, which is systematic in this case, is met and is met to the approval of the regulatory body and the approval of our potential customers. So this is extremely important. I do also want to say that it's interesting being a publicly traded company located in the West 
and trying to engage in this activity. I'm gonna do a little compare and contrast of it for you on this. Not only do we feel the pressure of the ESG movement, you know, environment, social concerns and governance concerns that any other uh, publicly traded company would, but we also have committed to a kind of a, a low impact system for management with as close to zero waste at water, even in the mineral processing side of things. And a very interesting prospect called twinning, which would basically establish a real-time representation of exactly what's going on on the seabed floor that anybody could look at by simply logging onto a website. You can see in real time the activities that are occurring. That is very different than most terrestrial mining, and it is certainly very different than if seabed mining were to occur at the hands of a state-run institution, say, in China. And I, I want to make this very clear. We are long past the question of whether seabed minerals will be recovered or not. We are now at the question of what standards will be used, who will participate in the activity, and who will not. And if it turns out that Western companies with their openness, with their ESG concerns, and the rest of it are not part of the puzzle, then almost assuredly, state-run monopolies out of China will occupy that space. And, I, and, and no one should believe that there will be a better approach if the Chinese are in the lead here. They will most assuredly be less transparent. And right now, frankly, these Western companies like TMC have a technological advantage. It's one of the few times I could say that. We have a technological advantage over our competitors. But if, if that's for naught, then what we're going to end up having is state-run institutions that are far less transparent. Right. Before I let you go on that topic, though, I'd like to just ask a quick follow-up question. I mean, there is a movement afoot to create a battery that doesn't need this. And I understand that most of the public, including myself, interested in purchasing an electric-powered vehicle are concerned. It's called range anxiety. You know, you don't want to get halfway to where you're going and suddenly you've got to charge the battery. But with that in mind, however, there is a, currently some technology underway that would allow for batteries made of lithium, iron, and phosphate. They are apparently supposed to be cheaper, and there is a company in China that is using batteries made of these chemicals. So I'd like to get, I mean, I want to give you the opportunity to respond sure. to that, because that, that information, I think, is in the public domain, and, and some of our listeners might have questions. Sure, absolutely. Let me say this about lithium-ion batteries. First of all, bring all technologies forward. I mean, if we can, and I'll, I'll add to your list of alternatives. Uh, yes, li lithium-ion batteries do compete with nickel-cadmium batteries. That's true. There are many other resources. There's hydrogen fuel cells that can be used to uh, benefit the fleet. There's carpooling and mass transit, which can be used to reduce the net amount of batteries that would be needed. But even with all of these, we can all agree that there's going to be a major transformation of the vehicle fleet in coming years. And the first thing I'd say about lithium-ion batteries is they use nickel. I mean, this is not widely known because it's not in their name, but the batteries still have anodes, even if they are not using nickel and cadmium in the chemistry between the anodes, but they still require nickel. And so that's why when the Biden administration did their 100-day review of critical supply chains, they said one of the most important elements, if they could wave a magic wand, the thing they would like to see the United States have is not only nickel reserves, but nickel processing reserves. And the good news about seabed minerals is they allow for the United States to have an adequate supply. I mean, 
when I'm talking about the size of the resource, and this is, this is important, if you open up an individual mine anywhere on the surface of God's green earth, if it's a really great mine, it will make a minor dent in the mineral needs of the country that's in a major transition toward green energy. What is located in the clarion Clipperton zone is enough mineral resource, even when you take what has been set aside to, for protection of the environment, maybe 43% of the clarion Clipperton zone will never be touched because they're setting it aside as for environmental reserve. But even if you take only what is exploitable, it is more than enough battery metals to replace the entire world vehicle fleet. When we talk about moving the needle, this is a solution that actually moves the needle. Other solutions have difficulty doing it. And in terms of our alternatives, any alternative that uses the word battery still requires critical minerals. Alternatives that do not use the word battery, like fuel cells, also require critical minerals. Recycling is the future, but recycling is not the here and now solution because you, need, you can't recycle what you don't have. So you need to have the minerals at the front end in order to do so. And minimizing our use of vehicles, th that is an important and certainly a growing area of automobility. But particularly in the United States, I think most reasonable reviewers would say that we're not about to give up the personal car or vehicles used for business. I, I think that we are where we are and we need to have more resources to address our problems. The views expressed on national security law today have not been approved by the House of Delegates or the Board of Governors of the American Bar Association and accordingly should not be construed as representing ABA policy.